Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. And by Credit Karma, do not pay for your credit score. With Credit Karma, you can get your credit report right now absolutely free. Just visit creditkarma.com slash save to get started. There are no strings attached and no credit card is required at creditkarma.com slash save. And by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com slash political. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 29th, 2016, the dark, dark, Dark Money Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am alone in Washington this week. I think it's our last week in our satellite studio. John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Where are you, John Dickerson? Uh, I'm in New York City. Shouldn't you be in Iowa? Uh, it's complicated. Iowa. Okay. Uh, because I, I'm, in, uh, I'm in New York City on my way to go to um, interview Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Oh. Uh, but boy. first, I'm going uh, tonight to... Um, Sit on a stage in the um, Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh, are you doing? Wait, are you doing a Colbert show? Yeah. What to talk on the show? Excellent so about so Iowa. That's great. Awesome. Yeah. Excellent. There is also Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. You are in New Haven, right, Emily? I am indeed. Where, are, you, are you? Are you either interviewing Donald Trump or going on the Late Show, or going to Iowa? I am doing nothing interesting at all this evening. Man. On this week's Gab Fest, we have a billionaire in every segment. I guarantee it. There will, in fact, be maybe even more than one billionaire in some segments. The Iowa caucuses are next week. We will take the temperature of the weird Republican presidential race. Then Michael Bloomberg contemplates a run for president. We will ask the question, how happy is David Plotz about this contemplation? (laughs) Then we'll talk to Jane Mayer of The New Yorker about her new book, on Charles and David Koch's decades-long campaign to remake American politics, a dark, fascinating book. We'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, uh, Emily and David Axelrod had a conversation uh, this week about the state of the race. And David Axelrod, of course, Obama's chief strategist in 2008 and a great political analyst. And so we're going to use our Slate Plus segment to share that conversation that Emily and David had. Can I also plug David Axelrod's new uh, podcast, or not even so new, The Axe Files, which is excellent, and uh, fans of the show might enjoy trying out if they haven't already. My daughter loves that show. Yeah, really good. It's excellent. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash gabfestplus. 
The Iowa caucuses are next week as we tape on Thursday. Donald Trump appears to be continuing to plan to boycott tonight's Fox debate because Fox's Megyn Kelly is one of the hosts of that debate. Ted Cruz is trying to salvage a win in Iowa, even though Trump seems to have jumped ahead of him in the polls. Um, It is very unclear about which of the establishment candidates, that's the term that people now use for Rubio, Bush, Kasich, and Christie, which of them will do well enough to, to take the mantle of the leader. Meanwhile, on the left, Hillary is trying to fend off Bernie Sanders and crush him with a win in Iowa. John, is it are we safe to assume that this debate boycott is going to go through? I mean, by the time everyone listens to the show, we'll know. But is is Trump in fact going to set it out? I think he I think he is. He's uh, planned a counter event uh, su- supporting the wounded warriors at Shislow Auditorium at uh, Drake University in Iowa. So it's not just whether he shows or doesn't show at the debate itself. It's now about whether he shows or doesn't show at his own event. So, so is it a brilliant move? Is this a strategic move, or is this just you know? Trump's id again speaks out and says, the hell with it. I'm not going to show up. Or is this a move to sort of make sure that no one can catch him at the end? Why are those two things in opposition? I don't know. Maybe they're not. Yeah. Um, I think we won't know. I don't think we'll know until they vote in Iowa, which is the best. um, You know, you can argue it either way. I mean, you can argue that if this is a race about what he's decided to frame it on and what the rest of the candidates have decided to play on, uh, which is about strength and dominance and being the opposite to to Barack Obama, not careful and calculating and tender as he goes, but brash, in command, showing strength, showing dominance, then um, that's what he's doing uh, with this. And he's done that a lot, and it hasn't hurt him. So based on what's happened in the past, it might not. On the other hand, Ted Cruz is the first candidate who has attacked Trump from a position of strength. The others who've done it have been, you know, lower in the polls. But the polls now would seem to suggest in the last week of close fighting that the Trump has has won those fights. But I should, and then I'll shut up, hasten to add quickly that polling is not only wonky these days and, and shouldn't be t- leaned on too heavily, but also the, the organizational aspect of the Iowa caucuses is different than a normal vote. And so organization and, and the Cruz team, which has a very strong organization, could be responsible for having creating an outcome that's different than those polls. So, Emily, they're, they're right. As John hints at, there are two kind of theories of the case for what is likely to happen in Iowa. One is there'll be a regular caucus turnout. Cruz's people, they're regular voters. They know what to do. They actually show up it's bad weather. They're used to it. They're well organized. They know they're disciplined, and they will. There won't be a huge surge in turnout. Cruz wins. The, the Trump theory is Trump has energized whole categories of new voters. They will show up for the caucuses. Yeah, they may not quite understand it, but they'll be so enthusiastic they'll figure it out. And and then this new set of voters will swamp, um, will swamp, and Trump will get a big win. Is either of those models seeming persuasive to you? I mean, the first one just seems more plausible because it's based on everything that's happened before. And to believe in the second one, you have to imagine this level of follow through in the Trump enthusiasm that we just don't have any evidence for. But we don't have evidence because nobody's voted yet. So it could turn out to be right. And in terms of this weird debate skipping, 
I mean, it seems like John's right about the dominance and the toughness and the way in which this decision plays into that image that Trump has so brilliantly cultivated. And the only difference this time is that he's taking on Fox News, which has its own base of support in the party and is kind of an odd adversary for him. And then there's this weird wrinkle of like what is really so unfair in quotes or scary about Megyn Kelly. Why can't he just answer some questions from her? But I feel like for the true Trump supporter who just like goes with him wherever and who, um, you know, may be sexist in the way that Trump is so clearly sexist, all of those things seem less important than just like being carried away on the 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 self-certainty and the bravado of Donald Trump, which is just like never ending and such an incredible um, show to watch. Oh, by the way, I would just interject that uh, he would um, he would argue that this has nothing to do with Megyn Kelly, but that this has to do with Trump's, uh, excuse me, with Fox's mistreatment of him uh, in a in a press release that they um, put out. Now, the the, the the problem with he'd that, already dropped the, out. The, right. He'd already problem, dropped the, out by the time. Exactly. I mean, I'm just can. trying to finish the sentence. I'm just a humble guy trying to finish the sentence. I'm just getting there. Oh, please. Don't get me. I'm just trying to get to the end of the sentence. But the problem with that argument is that um, Who he, are was, you, Jeb he Bush? was dropping out of the. It was the threats of that he was going to drop out of the debate that caused the press release to be published in the first place. So um, uh, the argument uh, doesn't hold. John, wh- which of the uh, theories about the kind of electorate that's going to show up uh, seem seems more more persuasive to you. Right uh, uh, Is there? A, do you think the fact that registrations aren't up means that Trump's voters aren't? Well, come out? you know, I mean, you can argue with that two different ways because so registrations are up; they're just not up in a gargantuan amount. But that can mean several different things. It can mean that they're going to register on caucus night. But if that's the case, then it means that the Trump organization hasn't gone around and registered them, which is what you do for for several reasons. But you do it so that you lower the barrier to entry for them, because even though it's not that hard to register on caucus night, why not take away one more? You know, why not make it as easy as possible? It's also a way to interact with your supporters, make sure that they're still warm and happy. So that is a mark against the notion that he's going to turn out a bunch of people. The registration numbers in the Democratic side have not been astronomical either, which suggests that stories about the Sanders kind of blossoming set of supporters might also be a little oversold. Here's what I think. I mean, you've outlined it. I think I would add one other thing that will be on display in Iowa, which is the Cruz campaign is not just they have of all the Republicans, I think you can argue, run the most kind of um, Obama-esque campaign in terms of organization. They are addicted to analytics. They are very focused on making door-to-door contact with their voters. They know which voters they're in in a wrestling match with Donald Trump on. They know which voters they're in a wrestling match with Marco Rubio, and they're touching those people at the door, on the phone. And it's not just randoms who are calling them. They're trying to get neighbors to touch neighbors. So that's the most... That's the that is a, that's a felony even in Iowa, That's Neighbors um, are not allowed to touch neighbors. That's, that's kind of state-of-the-art. Now, they may not... You have two possible outcomes. One, they're just not that spin, and they're not getting any real success out of that. Or two, they can be doing super well with that and maximizing every last Cruz voter, and Trump still through a process that nobody's ever tried to really 
do, although, I mean, or nobody's been successful doing, which is just showing up and having big rallies. I mean, he hasn't done what you're supposed to have to do in Iowa. And the guy who's running his ground game in Iowa was Santorum's ground game strategist. But Santorum went to every coffee clutch, every possible thing in all of Iowa. So that's the, the big question. Will it be enthusiasm that swamps kind of technical expertise? Which of the second tier, again, to use the establishment candidate line, which of them appears to be making some kind of a move, John, in either Iowa or New Hampshire? Well, I think at the moment it looks like Rubio has third. Um, you know, the, the problem for Rubio is if it's a, a tepid third. So if you're in third and you kind of have an okay showing, 10%, 11%, 9%, it's a meh. So he needs to overperform where he is in the polls right now to get a little of the juice that he needs for the kind of, what do we call them, the, the, the non-theatrical set of candidates, the ones who don't appeal to the emotion of the party but are trying to appeal to the head and the reason of the party, what's been called the establishment group. But if Jeb Bush does better than expected, if Christie does better than expected, and Kasich's really not in the running in Iowa, then they would get some love, you know? It's really about where you are and what the reputation is going into the event. But the one to watch is, is Rubio, and I think there's more downside risk for him, actually, because there's a you lot You mean of, if he doesn't really do well, he, then he looks Yeah, pathetic. he doesn't look like he's in, you know, if, if, if Trump's in the 20s and Cruz is in the 20s and Rubio's 10, it, it just looks like you're not in the same league, and you at some point have to get in the league in order to be the alternative to Trump Cruz. And I hear two different things from Rubio land, which is, we have to have a good third place showing behind Trump Cruz in Iowa and New Hampshire, or we're dead. So if anybody comes in ahead of him, that's it. And then others are saying, oh, we're just going to wait till the 15th of March and do well in Ohio and Florida, which are the winner-take-all states. These early states, as we've, I guess we've talked talk about this before, are proportional. And therefore, you can come in third and still get a, a, a proportion of the delegates and it's not devastating. Whereas you come in third in Ohio and get no delegates, that is not good. You're going to Iowa, I take it, John, right? You're always in Iowa. Yeah. What, what are you going to be watching for? What are the things that you're most excited to pay attention to? Yeah, is it the that's a great question. Returns from uh, Drake County? From <laughs> No, well, I mean, you want to see in t- turnout and, and, you know, you want to see on the Republican side, you want to look at Des Moines and everything to the West. And you want to look at numbers. I love it when John talks this way. Did you used to talk this way on dates? Is this why Anne married you? You were like Des Moines, <laughs> Des Moines, and look to be. the West. It might be. It might be why you know I didn't talk this way, and that might have been how I hoodwinked her. Um, like Polk County and Dallas County, which are around Des Moines, Ankeny, which is in Polk County. They used to call Rubio the mayor of Ankeny because he kept just going back to Ankeny. But like Sioux Center, which is up in the about as far in the it's in Sioux County, far northwest as you can, that's probably Cruz. So I'll be looking for turnout numbers, where they're turning out, and which of the candidates are you know rushing to get to New Hampshire and talking about anything but Iowa. If Trump wins it and then he takes New Hampshire, is Cruz out? What do you think, Emily? And then I'll weigh in. No, I don't think so. I feel like this whole idea that this is going to play out for another month in all these different contests is right. I mean, there are the states are different from each other. The delegates are proportionally divided up, like you just said. Why should it be over when everybody has their own funder? Um, 
I thought you said everybody has their own thunder, which I like better. Um, <laughs> Isn't it? You I didn't think. say, oh, it was thunder. Oh, I thought you said thunder, too. Thunder yeah. is, is better. Thunder, I could have said thunder. 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 It would have been yeah. more interesting if I had said thunder. They make their own weather, that's for sure. Um, I think that um, if you're Ted Cruz and you lose Iowa, that's not great. One of the things that's great about a primary contest, um, or sorry, a nominating contest, is you have election after election. So the spin going into one contest um, gets a fact check by the voters that then exists going into the next contest. When you spin before a general election, you say, oh, we got this and then the other thing, and then you lose and everybody forgets about it and moves on. But now the things you said about your organization and about how you were connecting with voters, has to, it lives on and weighs you down or props you up going forward. So that's one thing is that if, if coming out of Iowa, Cruz loses, then it's like, hey, he didn't really have the main line into the conservatives. Here's a really super conservative state with a lot of evangelicals, and he couldn't sell it there. And remember, Cruz's entire candidacy is predicated on the idea that he's going to swamp Washington with a conservative army of grassroots uh, volunteers and supporters. It's a sort of Bernie Sanders version on the right. So if you can't energize the, the conservatives in a, in a state that has a lot of your kind of voters in it, it calls into question the theory of your governing argument. Ted Cruz could continue on as the anti-Trump true conservative, which is a posture he is very comfortable with. And there are a lot of people who really like Ted Cruz out in the country. And so even if he didn't have a chance at winning, I don't think it hurts his brand at all for him to be the last true man standing for conservative principles. I mean, he basically played that role in the Senate. And so he becomes a, a hero of a sort. You know, Reagan lost in 76, but came back and won in 80. So, All right, last question on this. The president appeared to try to give Hillary Clinton a little bit of a boost this week in his interview with Politico. He certainly has been saying warm things about her. Um, do you get the sense that, that her Iowa is improving and that she could she can, in fact, win it and sort of reduce the jitters around it? I'm going to steal something that David Axelrod said to me when I interviewed him earlier this week, which is that Hillary is making an authentic Hillary argument in talking about how much more electable she is and how she is someone who changes things from within the system as opposed to claiming that she's going to come in and rip everything up, um, you know, healthcare being exhibit A for this discussion. And I feel like in the end, that should be compelling to Democratic voters. As John was saying before, the fact that voter registration isn't up is not good for Bernie Sanders in the same way that it isn't good for Donald Trump because they're supposed to be bringing in this new set of people. And I'm just skeptical that those people are really going to show up in huge numbers. Next time we talk to you, we will know all of these things. We will be speaking from a position no longer of ignorance, but of information. That will be exciting. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, there's a pretty good chance I'll still be speaking from a position of ignorance. I don't think I can change my stripes completely. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I'm, I will definitely be speaking from a position of ignorance. But America may not be ignorant. I'm going to know everything the, next right, week. America, everything. I'm going to know gonna... what the deal is. Um, <laughs> all right. The GapFest is brought to you this week by Stamps.com. Sometimes it feels like there aren't enough hours in the day, even when you're working way past 9 to 5. So if you're still making time-consuming trips to the post office, you need a better way, and that is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you get the postage you need the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your computer and printer. Stamps.com is quick and easy, and you will save money with it, too. 
because it's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters, and you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. Right now, if you sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, a four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Michael Bloomberg, it's flirting, flirting heavily. I'm going to kind of – watching Michael Bloomberg flirt is actually sort of an alarming prospect. But he's flirting heavily with the prospect of running for president as an independent. He's testing the waters with his $36 billion. He's had a weird kind of run in the – several years since he's left the New York mayor's office. He has run his foundation. He's run his business. He's engaged in politics around particular issues he cares about, notably anti-gun initiatives, which have been notably not successful. He's clearly been hankering for something big if he doesn't appear to have sort of settled on anything. And he may have decided that running for president is that big thing. Bloomberg, of course, had this tremendous run as mayor of New York. My admiration for him on the show has been well documented. Knows no bounds. Um, but now he seems to have decided he needs to ought to make a run for it. And if he's going to do it, that he needs to position himself by March to get going because of the timing of ballot qualification. Before we get to kind of whether this is a good idea, is this realistic? Is it realistic that... Michael Bloomberg is a credible, victorious, independent presidential candidate, even if it's Donald Trump against Bernie Sanders in the general. David, why don't you answer that question? What do you think? I think it's an insane idea. I Look, I love Michael Bloomberg. Again, we've talked about this. I love him. Love him to death. First of all, it's not going to be a Sanders-Trump race. But I guess if it were a Sanders-Trump race, he could run. If Hillary is in the race, it is all he's going to do is throw the election to the Republicans. There's no scenario in which he is a, he's he's takes more votes from Republicans than he does from Hillary Clinton. There's none. It just doesn't make any sense. I, I actually can give you a scenario. What is it? The way to think about for me the Bloomberg question is: there's the national poll. There's room. Well, thanks for, for letting me finish. John. Oh, I didn't. I thought. I thought that's you were okay. Finished. You go ahead. No, you go. You ahead. paused for breath. Bring that's your inf- Bring your information. Go ahead. Uh, so I think um, so. There's the national question, which means there's a big open highway for an independent kind of candidate. Um, of course, the independent becomes the vessel for everybody's hopes and dreams. So that always has to get factored in that people like you before they actually get to know you, um, and so that there are challenges there. But when you get to the electoral college, the Democrats have about 247 states that are traditional Democratic voting states. Republicans have about 206. Those are not states Michael Bloomberg, he's not going to go win South Dakota or North Dakota, and he's not likely to win Vermont against Bernie Sanders. So the question is, when it comes down to an electoral college battle, Republicans have to do much better than Democrats do, because Democrats start with more, more states that are in their column as a lock. So there are, Bloomberg's going to have to fight everywhere, right? He's got no states in his category. But I think a way you could see it hurting Republicans is that if Democrats are pretty far towards their 270, 
if they have 247, now Bloomberg might take, take some away from them. But anyway, they've got a big bunch of, of electoral votes. They only really have to p- compete in Florida and maybe two other battleground states. Republicans, to do well, have to compete in a lot of battleground states to win. So, as Ryan Priebus says, Democrats have to be good. Republicans have to be perfect. If Bloomberg is fighting Republicans in every single purple battleground state, and they have to win more of those states, you could argue that he takes away from them by making their electoral trip even harder, even though— But your premise is totally wrong, because the Democrats— the 247 is not locked if Bloomberg is in the race. Then all of a sudden, those are states where the Democrats are going to have to fight. Right. That's possible. It depends, though, because what we – I mean, I, I'm not saying this is a dead Sherlock case, but, but you're, you're imagining that Republicans are thrilled about Donald Trump. But you don't have to imagine so, them being thrilled. Words, you could he, just imagine them being at 40 percent, right? I mean, that's the well, thing but, about three people. But, but – but in David's theory about New Jersey, he has all Democrats going to Bloomberg well, and no Republicans. Why wouldn't it be possible that all the Republicans go to Bloomberg and this, the Democrats stay with Sanders? Well, that there's, a, there's that a, it's a huge there's Democratic already, already seen in the polling. There's a very significant move towards Republicans being willing to vote for Trump, that the Republicans are now very in a, in, a, in a large majority are willing to vote for for Trump. So I don't think there's a well, that's a, absent a third party candidate. Yeah, but. But the thing that's happened in this country, and the reason why I think Bloomberg is so different from Perot, is that Perot channeled an outsider anger at, at Washington. And that was what allowed him to pick up 20%. He picked up 20% of voters who were not really, there were people who were highly resentful of what was happening. That group has been captured by the Republican Party. Where Bloomberg is trying to pick up is some 20% in the middle, which is, it's very hard to to see that group becoming an animated, successful, galvanized voting bloc, especially yeah. because Bloomberg is a charismaticless politician. He's, right. a, he's a very effective politician, but he does not have any charisma. Yeah, if we're getting into a discussion of how steep the hill for, is for him to climb, it is nearly vertical. Um, I mean, he has, to have organiz- he has to build 270 electoral votes. He has to build an organization, and he has to, to sustain an enthusiasm in the electorate over a long period of time, because the Republicans and Democrats will have enthusiasm for their for their person. Right. And he's also, he is very old. He's 73. I doubt he's as sharp as he's been. I mean, very few 73-year-olds are as sharp as they were at 65 or 60. He's Jewish. He's a New Yorker. He's another New Yorker. It seems like an act of homicide, an act of sort of burning money and an act of homicide towards Hillary Clinton. If he ran. Well, the Hillary Clinton part, I mean, I feel like there's zero chance of him running if Hillary runs. And I can't even really decide whether I think it's at all plausible, even if it really is Bernie Sanders versus either Cruz or Trump, because I still feel like the mountain to climb to win is so high. Although I, I agree with you, although why not? You know, what else is he doing? And just one to balance out my attempt to make a case for how it hurts Republicans the issues and his posture and the way he behaves in terms of using the government to both on gun control and also on sodas is a kind of meddlesome intervention that would galvanize Republicans much more than it, you know, in anger and opposition to him than it would, uh, than anything he does would uh, cause right. that kind He's, of reaction. He stands for meddlesome government. He stands for anti-gun. 
I mean, that's he doesn't he's he's a centrist Democrat. He's not even a centrist Democrat. He's basically a liberal Democrat who has centrist views on financial markets. If I could appoint him governor of the United States, he could be our appointed governor. Receiver, I, would do it I think, is your favorite <laughs> office. Laser. Yeah, he could be a receiver. Could just put the exactly. whole country exactly. into receivership. The, 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 I got so much nasty, uh, nasty mail and Twitter about my my comments and favors of rece- receivership. But I, I would. I take think we also call Bloomberg that king. Emperor, no autocrat. receivers, good. Those are no, all because other it's, words. it's bureaucratic. I, I know because it's because <laughs> it's bureaucratic kingliness. It's what an excellent combination. It must be. It must be very frustrating for Michael Bloomberg to know that you were basically proven yourself to be the most capable elected leader in America. That you've done the the second the job that is second in demand to president in terms of the the demands on you. You've done it and done it better than anyone has done it in a century. And yet you can't be president. That must oh, be frustrating. Please. Crimea River. Oh, come on. He oh, was come a on. good you, mayor of no, a big you look city. At, you, that is it, not like, and now I'm entitled you to look be at, president oh, of the Oh, come United on. But he States. looks, I'm sure he looks and he sees Ted Cruz or he sees Donald Trump, who I'm sure he thinks Donald Trump is a clown, or Hillary Clinton, he who is, he derides. But, and all of them. And he looks at them and say, I'm a more successful businessman than Trump is. I'm a more successful elected official than any of these other people. And yet, what do I, what am I doing? What can I do? I can't do anything. It's it's uh it's yeah, a it's whatever. a bummer for him, and no, no he wonder he can go he's sit at Trump's knee and learn how to sprinkle that magic fairy dust. Why not just go fight the no, the noble fight and you know, I mean, I, what are you talking about? Then you are the spoiler forever. I yeah. Mean, then you elect Donald Trump or Ted Cruz for president, well, and nobody invites you, could, you to their dinner parties. You could do you could you could do Perot minus getting back in the race, which is. You know, Perot, Perot dropped out. I mean, he was falling and fading. And so then he got out before the Democratic Convention and said, well, my issues are now being discussed, which was not so, so much the case. But you could do that. And then just not don't try and get back in again, which Perot did. All right. Well, Michael Bloomberg, come see me any evening, Michael. My door is always open. The GapFest is brought to you this week by Credit Karma. Get some help with your New Year's resolutions with Credit Karma. You might not get those abs you've been dreaming of having, but you can take steps to get your credit score in shape. Credit Karma offers truly free credit reports. No strings attached, no credit card required. And it's incredibly easy to use, which is why there are 45 million members already using Credit Karma. Credit Karma doesn't just show you a score and send you away. They actually break it down so you can see how your actions can affect your score. Like how if you use too much of your credit limit, your score can go down. There's useful information on the site, like articles about how closing old credit cards could actually hurt your credit. You don't even need a computer to see your scores. Credit Karma has a free mobile app that works for Apple and Android phones. So visit creditkarma.com slash save right now to get your free report. That's creditkarma.com slash save. Jane Mayer, staff writer at The New Yorker, is a national treasure. She is, I would argue, our greatest reporter. She's spent the last half decade or so burrowing into the secret empire that's remaking American politics, and she has emerged. She has tunneled out after burrowing with a book called Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. And it is a book primarily about the Koch brothers, Charles and David Koch, who have engaged in a 40-year campaign to gut the power of government, elect libertarian conservatives, erect and strengthen conservative institutions, and undermine the left. 
And this is a campaign that has basically succeeded. The Kochs are planning to spend, I think it was $900 million on this cycle, election cycle. And they and their acolytes have also remade state politics. I still think, Jane, that your article about uh, Art Pope in North Carolina is the most important, enlightening journalistic piece of work in recent years. So she has reported the daylights out of this this story out of a notoriously secretive, non-responsive Koch family. She has been harangued, harassed, and smeared in return. We are thrilled to have Jane Mary with us. Hello, Jane. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much. I'm after a, a welcome like that. I'm sure to fall on my face. Thank you, though. I feel so happy to come back out into the open after these years of burrowing. I want to begin uh, with a question. It was something you said in another interview I read about about Charles Koch. You're talking about the Koch political enterprise. It's testimony to Charles Koch. He's an engineer who looked at American politics and thought, "How do you manufacture change here?" It's a triumph of engineering. What does that mean? What have the Kochs engineered? Well, they looked at American politics systematically as how do you get change? They actually, there's a paper that their top advisor has called the social mechanism of change. And what it requires is the creation of intellectuals who will spout the right positions. And then you take those positions, they describe those as the raw product. And then they manufacture that into position papers in think tanks. And the think tanks then need to have a sales force. The sales force are the people on the streets who are in part of their pressure groups. And they take the ideas, the raw products, and push them out into the American bloodstream so that you mainstream sort of far-right ideas into the American political system. What's an idea that was birthed or, or midwifed by them and, and has taken over the mainstream? You know, I'm not sure that I would say that they've absolutely succeeded. I see it more as a jump ball where they are at this point. But if you take the idea of, say, whether global warming is real, the Kochs have spent something like $50 million on spreading uncertainty about climate science. And if you look at public opinion, it's gone from embracing climate science where it was a few years ago, basically maybe five years ago. And now the, the amount of doubt about whether it's real has grown. And there have been a lot of studies that suggest that it's because there's so many think tanks and media outlets and politicians who are being backed by the Kochs and their allies who spout this view. Has it created more confusion than, I guess, or is it possible to, to do a do a controlled analysis that's separate from all the confusion and sorting that now takes place on every issue by partisanship? You know, is it, is it very much different than all the other issues that basically once the partisans learn which side the other guy is on, they're against it regardless of the facts of the case? Well, what's happened with climate change, if you look at the numbers that's so interesting to me, is that it was much more of a bipartisan issue so that it it was not a polarized issue necessarily just a few years ago there were a lot of a lot of republicans have been environmentalists in the past the elites that is the office holders became more and more polarized because that's where their funding was coming from and the general public kind of lagged behind that and is kind of following where the elite opinion is on it. The elite opinion is where the money is. And the money on climate science on the right 
is fossil fuel money, and it's just vitriolically against climate change. The Kochs, I think, are interesting because they have ideas. They take ideas seriously. They fund their ideas. They put their ideas out in the world. They are ideologues in the sense, in the true sense of the word. They have ideas that they believe and want to put out and put I think, out there. Is that I mean, is that admirable? I think you have to respect that. I mean, I think one of the things that is that is admirable about the conservative movement is that it takes ideas seriously. And there's a, a, a section in this book where I describe how Steve Wasserman, who runs the Yale University Press and is a liberal, tried to get some big liberal donors together. And he said, you know, we need to start getting you to fund books like the right does. And the, he said the liberal donors who was there, and he names them, were sort of saying, ah, you know, it's like it's too slow. It's not splashy. They wanted sort of something that gave you more bang for the buck. It's a very slow process to fund an intellectual movement. This has taken place over 40 years. You know, you have to kind of admire that Charles Koch put the money and – in and just kept at it and played a very, very long game. And he's not alone. I mean, part of one of the things I just wanted to say about the book is it, the Cokes are among the really interesting characters, but they're far from the only ones who've been doing this. And there are a number of other super wealthy families that, that worked with them. If you were defending the Cokes in the sort of ideas um, argument part of this, wouldn't you say that so many American universities are dominated by liberals, that the liberals didn't even need their own funding for books? Like those ideas are already out there in the stratosphere and we have to do this kind of very deliberate seeding in order to compete with this, you know, I think what conservatives see is this liberal takeover and dominance of American intellectualism and American universities. Well, that's certainly how they saw it. And there's a chapter in the book called Beachheads that's about a very deliberate strategy they had. It was the, They called it the Beachhead Strategy. And it was to get a beachhead in prestigious universities. They specifically were aiming for the Ivy Leagues because they knew that the lesser ones would follow what happens in the Ivies. And so they tried to find a professor here or there who shared their libertarian views and then started pouring money into that person so that they could expand their role in the university. They knew if they tried to impose it cold from the outside, it would be rejected like an organ transplant that didn't work. So you had to instead sort of grow up what was in there. I think I see it not the same way that the Cokes do in that I think that there's an organic kind of academic outlook that comes from academic freedom and the pursuit of knowledge without a particular agenda in mind. And that what the Kochs have instead is they are subsidizing a predetermined point of view where they want the academics to agree with them. It's not an open inquiry. They're subsidizing um, a political, they're propagating a point of view. And they're doing it in places that often need money very badly, sometimes because the conservatives are, at the same time, they're cutting public funds for these colleges and universities. They are holding out a sort of a juicy tidbit of money that they'll give them if you study what we want. Why do you think it is that there's these old rich white guys and some, I guess, younger rich white guys and maybe some non-guys occasionally who are so angry at what's happened. Why Why would the Koch brothers, who, whose fortune has ballooned in, during the Obama years, I believe, I think I saw something that said it tripled during the Obama years, why is there so much resentment, so much a sense that they're being wronged? 
I think it comes from the beginning where in, in when this all began, and I describe it in the book in, in 1970 about, and certainly in the end of the 60s, there was a sense on the far right that they were marginalized, that the liberal establishment had everything, and that they had no institutions and no respect. And, and it was to some extent true. I mean, and even when I came to Washington, which was to cover the Reagan White House for the Wall Street Journal in 1984, there were conservatives in Washington. Obviously, Reagan was a conservative. But these kinds of conservatives, the really hardcore movement conservatives, they were kind of fringe. They weren't taken that seriously. I used to call them up a lot because they were dying to talk to anybody. But um, they felt left out of the American political debate, and they thought they deserved more respect. Charles Koch was quoted as saying he was disappointed with the, I think it was Charles, disappointed with the crop of candidates so far and the race so far. Most people would think that it's been a pretty conservative, dominated conversation in the, in the Republican race. Where do the Kochs fit in with, uh, you know, when you talk about hard right, most people think, oh, well, they'd be perfectly happy with Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. So why would Charles Koch be unhappy? Well, he's always unhappy to some extent because he's he defines the furthest right pole in American politics, and it's never quite where he is. And this, this was true in 1980 when Charles's brother David ran as vice president of the United States on the libertarian ticket against Reagan because they thought Reagan was a sellout and was way too liberal. So the party has always been to the left of them. In the current crop, they actually have been backers of, of, of Ted Cruz. The first time I saw Ted Cruz speak was at a convention that was held by Americans for Prosperity, which is the main group that the Kochs um, fund. And so they've, they've given him support in the past. I think the, the disappointment to some extent reflects Charles Koch's feeling that, that you've got Donald Trump in there. And Trump is, is a wild card. He's not begging for funds from the Koch network. And he's not really following their playbook in terms of policy. Why not then, uh, oh, you know, get the network? I know they're not, they said they weren't going to support anybody in the primary process. But Given that feeling about Trump, surely they could, below the Kochel brothers level, help Cruz come to uh, a better victory. No one seems to be. Well, some of them, no, actually, they're one of the big players in the Koch network, um, who I write about in the book, is, is um, someone named uh, Robert Mercer, who is um, the head of a, a huge hedge fund in New York, a yeah. quant fund, Renaissance. And he's been a, a major part of this network, and he is also put, I think at last time I checked, was $11 million behind Cruz in a super PAC. So he is doing that. And meanwhile, they also are just now putting up ads in New Hampshire. Americans for Prosperity is, again, that's the kind of main Coke political group, is putting up ads that are attacking Kasich because they see him as not a real conservative. So they're doing a few, there are a few little things, but they have decided to sit it out, not back a primary candidate, I think they want to see who emerges, as does most of the political establishment, if anyone, if anyone emerges against Trump. One thing I've wondered about, Jane, especially since that your wonderful story about Art Pope and how Art Pope funded the takeover of North Carolina's politics at the state level, it, the, the key insight I think here is that politics is – if you're rich, politics is cheap, that you can invest what is actually a relatively small sum – and get a huge result. Do you think the Kochs think of, do they think of their political, or the Kochs and the Koch 
network think of their political spending as an actual investment in policies, or is it is it driven to improve America? I think both. Um, and, you know, there's, there's sort of different aspects of the investment made by the Cokes. One is the money spent by Coke Industries in its pack. That money is very pragmatic money. Um, and if you take a look at it, the contributions go even to some Democrats. If they're in states where Coke has big uh, factories and needs the help of the local politicians. But I mean, the, the people ask often, well, are they motivated by um, ideology or self-interest? And first of all, I think, you know, it's almost impossible to tell with any of us. Um, but but in their case, their ideology is an ideology of self-interest. Uh, they, they embrace completely the idea that what's good for Coke Industries is good for America. And they really mean it. I mean, they think they create jobs. They think that regulations um, stifle entrepreneurship. And they think that taxes are, I mean, if you go back to the early things that Charles Koch was writing, they, they, taxes are a form of theft that the government shouldn't be able to take. And so they think that this is what's good. It just happens to be that it also completely dovetails with their personal self-interest, their private accumulation of wealth, and what's good for Coke Industries. Jane, one of the things that you write about recently and at the end of your book is the way in which the Cokes are trying to support seemingly progressive causes like criminal justice reform in a way that is actually self-interested and also that in which they, it seemed to me from reading you that the underlying point you were making to me was that they get a lot of credit for doing quite little and that it, it allows them to mask all the underlying ways in which they're actually acting against the interests of poor people or people of color. I just wonder if uh, you know that's something you think they'll continue doing and whether you think they're actually getting a lot of bang for their buck by partnering with criminal justice reformers. Obama kind of called them out and said, hey, you have to give them some credit for this. Valerie Jarrett's been meeting with them. It's just an interesting wrinkle in their recent public image. Well, I think they've gotten a great bang for the buck from it, though I asked a pollster about whether their image has changed when you look at when you just do polls. And that was Jeff Guerin, who has been doing a lot of polling about the Cokes. He says he sees no no improvement in their image, and their image is still pretty terrible. <laughs> um, so maybe people don't buy it. But they've certainly been put, pouring money and effort into a great rebranding. The main import of what they've been trying to do is is to appear more compassionate. So they're doing everything from handing out turkeys in Florida to people who needed them for Thanksgiving to working on criminal justice reform, which, I, just to be fair, they actually do believe in some criminal justice reform. And there is overlap between the very far right and the liberals on this particular subject. It's just that in the Venn diagram, it's it's a tiny pinpoint. Um, Charles is 80 mm-hmm. and David is 75. Is it your sense that when the brothers die, that the infrastructure of this movement decays? Or is this network that they've built a self-sustaining operation? I, it seems that Charles's son, Chase, who is uh, also an executive in Coke Industries, does not necessarily see himself as an ideologue. I mean, I think, to tell you the truth, I really think, having spent years now covering Charles, he's a kind of one-of-a-kind character out there right now in American politics. He's, he's one of the most strong-minded, determined, 
brilliant in some ways and successful and competitive people out there. And there's it, it would be hard to have a next generation that was just like him. Maybe somebody else will pick up the mantle, though. So I don't know what will happen with their network. And he's not saying. He says he has a plan for his foundation. He's got a tremendous amount of money. Um, I suppose he could try to keep it going in perpetuity. That is something that people worry about, about foundations, that they go on long past the person who originally endowed them, and they have very little transparency, and they keep being forces within the sort of the democratic Maybe it'll debate. be like the MacArthur Foundation. It will start as an ultra-right-wing foundation, and then in 40 years, it'll be, it'll be, handing, well, out, it'll that, be handing out grants to liberals. Don't you think the Cokes are studying <laughs> that to make sure they don't They are. There's there? actually – it's so funny you mention this because there's a there's – a, um, this is a, gr- a very widely sh- shared fear among conservative donors that the children might turn out to be liberal. And so there's an organization called Donors Trust that exists. It's, um, it's a, a, a fund that will keep investing your money for you in line with your views long after you've passed away. And it exists so that even if the kids want to go, you know, give it all to some cause that you don't believe in, they can't do it. They win. That's the end. Jane Mayer, her book is Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. She's a New Yorker staff writer. She's great. You should go get the book. Read it. It's ahead of O'Reilly on the bestseller list, which is for liberals out there, you may want to the keep it to be. keep it keep it ahead of there. <laughs> Jane, thanks for coming by. Thank you. The Gabfest is brought to you this week by Texture. The Texture app is the easiest way to remain culturally curious because it allows you to browse hundreds of magazines and cherry pick the articles that interest you most. Texture offers unlimited access to all your favorite magazines for less than the price of 3 magazines at the grocery store. Plus, you can share your subscription with the entire family. You can download articles and whole issues for offline reading. And it starts at less than $10 per month. The Texture editorial team recommends stories for you daily. And their curated collections let you dive deeper into topics that you're excited about. So sign up for Texture right now and in mere seconds gain insider access to the very best reads as well as exclusive content. And it's super easy to use. Just click the headlines on the cover page and Texture takes you right to the articles that interest you most. Stop wasting time flipping through pages. Stop wasting paper. Stop wasting your money. Get Texture today. And the best part is that Texture is offering GabFest listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com political. Think about that. You'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com political. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter, the one delightful, delicious, surprising story, fact, incident, bit of culture that you want to share with our listeners. Emily Bazelon, what's your chatter? I am sure a lot of our listeners heard this week about the indictments against uh, David Daleiden and his partner, the people who did the videotapes of Planned Parenthood last summer. And of course, these indictments for abortion supporters were a reason for some serious gloating because they came out of a criminal investigation against Planned Parenthood that flipped around and instead brought charges against Planned Parenthood's tormentors. The fact that leapt out at me of all of this is that Planned Parenthood's poll numbers are still high. 
they are really hanging in there. People seem to understand that they are a provider of healthcare services for women, for all kinds of low-income people, that they're performing a really important role in the country. And I was just struck by that. And it connects with something Jane was talking about with us in terms of some of the issues that the Koch brothers have not succeeded in actually pushing public opinion on, including the Koch brothers' own popularity standing. That seems, it's reassuring to me in this moment where it seems like parts of the American polity have spun out of control to know that there is certain kinds of bullshit that the American people, most people, will actually not swallow. John the Dickerson, what's your chatter? So my chatter is with um, the Iowa precinct caucuses coming up, and uh, everybody wants to uh, know what's going to happen in the in the in-between time, between when you hear this and the precinct caucuses uh, offer their results on um, on the night of the first, you should go listen to uh, Three Tickets, which is a podcast, 10 episodes done by Jason Noble of the uh, Des Moines Register about the history and culture of the Iowa Precinct Caucuses, how they started, how they work, the great stories in them, which I won't tell because, uh, I mean, some of them I knew before, but they're um, fun to hear in, in their proper context of all the stuff that goes on and, and how this came to be such an obsession uh, among politicians and, and the press. Go listen to it. Is it. Would you say that the Iowa caucus night is, is it more like Christmas for you? If you, if you couldn't, if you, the Iowa caucus I always feel is the, is the er John Dickerson moment. Better than your well, birthday, better yeah. than your anniversary. I don't, no, that's not true. Um, I mean, no, the, not better than my birthday. But I, there is something different about Iowa. And I don't, I mean, I love Iowa, um, but there are, you know, election nights just are fantastic because it's, as Emily said earlier, you, you finally, we can finally stop fooling around and get actual real results that prove a bunch of things, or at least, you know, they, I don't know if they prove things, but they at least give us better than what we, we, we have before, which is poll numbers and our gut and, and a bunch of kind of guesses. Um, I really like Iowa, and, and so it's a great night. But, I mean, it, it's also whatever night is the big deciding night whenever that comes and happens. All right. My chatter is, uh, is about the mushroom death suit. Those of you— That's a great phrase. Uh, just Yeah, it's itself. a great phrase. I'm a big fan of what's called sky burial, where you just take a body and throw it out there and let the birds pick at it. Oh, you have um, just brought this up before, you and yeah. sky burial and how the hawks are going to eat you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the hawks eating me. Anyway, this the mushroom uh, death suit is a new is a new spin on sky burial. It's a I read about it in my own uh, publication today in Atlas Obscura. But it's a it's a shra- basically a burial shroud, a suit, and it's infused with mushroom spores. And so when you're buried in it, the mushrooms feed off of you and uh, turn you into mushrooms. I love it. It's great. What a good idea. It feels like you know nature is going to do that anyway, but it's I are these I'm edible sure mushrooms? I feel like the, the hawks they are. eating you is more romantic than the mushrooms yes, <laughs> turning you definitely. into mushrooms. I would much I would I would definitely <laughs> rather be eaten by hawks. I would rather that vultures and so forth. I would like that. That would be better. But mushrooms would be okay. That would be fine. It fe- it feels like the problem with the mushroom death suit is that it's spending like they're creating this consumer product when really nature will just do the job. Nature wants to consume your body anyway so why do you need why do you need some mushroom spores but whatever it's uh still if you're if you're in the market look up the mushroom death suit if you're in the market for dying 
we all are in that market when you think about it. <laughs> well, yeah. as, a, as alas, we all are. Uh, okay, ending on that cheery note. Our intern, who's very far from death, further from death than any of us, is Elvis Gard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of podcasts is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. And last but not least, is our Twitter feed, which is at SlateGabFest. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes and leave a comment and rating while you're there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week after Iowa. Drones, Soylent, Digestible Tech, and why Facebook knows you better than yourself. Learn about these things and more from the Ink Uncensored podcast. Every week, Join Inc. Magazine's editors and writers as they talk about the latest news and obsessions coming out of Silicon Valley and beyond. Subscribe to Inc. Uncensored on your favorite podcast app now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.